Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. And I'm Steve. And we're discussing Chapter 5, The Nina Project. So first things first, listeners, I want to promise you that these are our real names. It's true. Can confirm. But before we we get into the episode breakdown, um, so this is your first time on Coffee and Contemplation. You were over on my other podcast, Classified, with our friend Aaron. It's true. When we classified characters from Into the Spider-Verse. But since this is your first time on this pod, um, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself, your overall history with Stranger Things, and generally how you feel about season four. Sure. I love Stranger Things and have loved it since it first came out. Uh, right when the first season came out, uh, not long after that, I think that first New Year's, uh, I even threw a party where we played lots of scenarios from Betrayal at House on the Hill while we just had Stranger Things season one on in the background. So I had a deep love for this, especially because that first season really hit strong for me and I really loved it and got very attached to it. Uh, There was just so much agency from so many characters and I don't know why, but I couldn't believe hearing other people talk about this 80s inspired horror. I just don't know why I didn't think it would work. Uh, It sounded silly to me. And then by the time I was looking at the set dressings in the first episode, I was just totally along for the ride. And then, yeah, uh, I've been on your other podcast. Uh, I do love to play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, uh, Also love to act. And D&D is certainly a good outlet for that. And it being a big part of Stranger Things is also something to to love and uh, and, you know, and want to participate in. I mean, I've. um, I even bought the Stranger Things 5th edition set uh, for a friend and we played that module where you play as kids. I'm so Uh, jealous. It's so fun and you play as kids in Hawkins and uh, it has like a loose class structure that's like, yeah, you still play as a fighter, but you're playing as these kids uh, in Hawkins and you're still investigating the the mystery and other paranormal activity or extraterrestrial and other scenarios that can be generated uh, by the DM's discretion. Throughout most of my watch of season four, you know, and the hype behind it, I think a lot of us were wondering if any characters would die. Us having played this one shot, some friends and I, you know, my character died and we definitely talked about like, wow, well, that was actually kind of heavy, even for our D&D game. Steve, you were playing a kid. How crazy and how heavy and hard would that be to really go through with like, the idea of a child's death in this show, especially after season one was so strong and emotionally resonating around will and his disappearance. And could he possibly have been dead? Mm -hmm. Um, That also that agency of will's disappearance and that possibility of his death really brought a lot of the emotion from season one to like this strong magnetic North for me. And I feel like that's, what's been starting to decrease uh, as the show has been going on despite some of my maybe dissonant feelings throughout uh, season four by the time it ended I was like okay maybe I thought some other things would be happening here but I was also like cool you finally hit this exposition note that I'm ready for more cool well then with that said let's proceed with contemplation For this episode, we're going to discuss California Crew, Russia, Hawkins, and then wrap up with Eleven. Since California Crew opens the episode and then Eleven closes it. Nice. So starting with the California Crew, 
you know, the, the cold open of this episode was, you know, like tough and traumatic events to me. They're in crisis as they're driving away with that agent. I don't know. I felt like while that was really good and took a certain tone at the beginning of the episode, I also felt like things got overshadowed so quickly with Argyle's penchant for comedy relief. You know, maybe just in general, I would say when he comes into the mix, I oftentimes wonder as a new character, why is Jonathan not being afforded more here? That's a really interesting way to look at it. Cause I will, I will admit on this podcast, most of us really love Argyle, but I do think you make an excellent point, which is if Argyle wasn't there, Jonathan might've had more to do. I That's miss, really interesting. I miss Jonathan having more agency in general. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like his looking after Will and Mike is great. And, yeah. and we've seen that before. I also just wanted to see Jonathan after these previous episodes that I feel like in some of the love with Argyle, which I do love Argyle. I don't want to uh, be too critical of Argyle because I have a sensitive soul to that spirit and especially that dude bra energy and i feel like there's even a former me that was that that person (laughs) especially in high school so i feel like uh there's definitely uh an empathy for that love there but yeah i i really wanted jonathan to step up to the plate more yeah argyle was just a lot of comedy relief and sort of jeopardizing i think jonathan's ability to step up and maybe shake literally the cloud of smoke uh, and where he's found himself. But it seemed more like a joke. And while they were burying even the agent man, I felt like that could have just strangely been a heavier scene. And it didn't play very heavy to me that someone died in front of them. Well, two people died as far as they know. The the one agent oh, yeah, gets shot right. when they come in. Yeah. And then you have the who they you see is still alive, but they don't know that. That's and right. And then this yeah, guy, the guy dies captured. in front of them. Yeah. I mean, because I was wondering about that, too. But I'm like, well, Mike has technically watched Eleven kill people. Yeah. So there that's is true. that. Um, but I will say, though, that one thing that I really I want to just touch on and kind of reflect back on is the fact that it in, a, in the previous episodes, the fact that we see Mike and Will making up. I think this is a really good example of why that needed to happen when it did. Cause I was kind of wondering, well, what, what if that hadn't happened? What mm-hmm. if they had gone off on this journey and they were still at odds? And I like that they made up because I think this dynamic is a lot more valuable that they are, they're on this trip together. They didn't need like, cause how weird would it have been if they're like still sitting there, like kind of not happy with one another? Like I, oh, li- sure. I like this dynamic a lot better cause this feels more like them from, I know broken records season two. Well, there's a high point to me in the California crew in this particular episode, and it's that I liked that during the uh, the burial of the agent man, whose name I can't seem to recollect. Well, that's what they call him repeatedly. Yeah, hero hero agent man, dude. Hero agent man, red shirt. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh, I feel so. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, he. Both of these agents, I like. Oh man, they did a great job playing the intensity those agents in the contrast of the kids' atmosphere, which was awesome because I feel like it was for them to be confused by like, Oh my God, the severity of all of this. Um, But I liked that Will and Mike were doing the burying together. I liked that they were both participating in it. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like there is a there's a moment here that I was like, you know, Will is still figuring himself out 
and experiencing a lot of things. And we're seeing him struggle with that. Like we're seeing his mental struggle. And there is kind of a brief moment here that although, yeah, maybe I wanted this burial to be a bit more serious and maybe feel the weight of the crisis kind of coming to this breath, this like maybe moment of release or relief. But I did like that uh, Will turns and looks at Mike while Mike is kind of in this white shirt, looking a little dirty from the burying. And like for this brief little moment, I can actually see this like, I can see how this boy is sad, conflicted right now. And he's looking at his friend that I know he's having complex feelings for too and i could see this strange moment of attraction i was like that was a cool moment yeah in this very complicated scene with complicated stakes yeah you know? yeah he knows that mike is thinking about 11 but will is concerned about 11 mm-hmm. yeah i liked that moment also and i i do genuinely like the moment they have on the on the the trunk of the car same but it's one of those moments in the season where I'm like, I just think a little bit more of a nudge in a specific direction would have been better. I wish that Mike had looked a little bit more like, wait, what are you, are you trying to tell? And then there's like the distraction of, yeah. Hey, what's the dead, dead guy, dead dude's name. Like, because again, everyone talks about the, the scene in the van later with the oh, painting sure, and how sure. like, it's like, Mike, come on. Yeah. How do you not see this Mike? But I think it happens here as well. It's, it's like, I just, as as focused as Mike is, I just I prefer him being more emotionally intuitive. Yeah. And so again, I like the scene a lot. It works, but I'm like, I think it could have been like just that much stronger if like Mike had been starting to pick up on it. Yeah. He could approach that with any level of observing it, being anxious to it, wondering himself. Yeah. I just think there's a there's so many complicated and complex feelings there. And I have to imagine as actors, that's got to be really great to play with uh, and try to work with and evoke. And, you know, how how tough has that got to be to be kids exploring complicated feelings that they're feeling for the first time? One thing, though, that I do think is funny, it's curious, is that they end up in a junkyard of sorts, <laughs> yeah. which is just like of all the places because the, it's it does look a lot like the one in Hawkins, just a different like geographical backdrop. So I'm guessing the Duffers must like that as like a backdrop. They must love that kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it works. Yeah, <laughs> it works. And I imagine, you know, it's an interesting, you know, it's got to be an interesting area to shoot too, because I'm sure all of the wreckage and metallic surfaces are cool against the sky and natural environment and it probably brings out the characters really well um and yeah i mean mike's idea to to go to Susie, like they they find them they find the thing they i i it's a good idea i remember when i watched through this the first time i was like oh, okay cool i was on board yes but one thing that um actually a mutual friend of ours um brian he is he's i feel like i've mentioned him at some point on the podcast before but he's a cinematographer cinematographer director something that he said about chapter six when it comes to the stuff in chapter six with Susie's house Mm -hmm. it shifts from the synth score to this john williams-esque symphonic score totally different and he went what on earth and i was like it happens in this episode first oh yeah it happens when they're like when mike gets the map and i was like there it is yeah and it feels weird it is it's a weird feeling and vibe and like i think for some consistency's sake, I guess there's a part of me that wants to be like, 
cool. I guess that's a nice editor's touch between the episodes, but is it really? Because we know what we'll review later, but I'm also with you. I recollected what goes on in the episode with Susie. The idea of it was very exciting. Yeah. How convenient, I guess, that based on their location out west, the California crew could feasibly drive the pizza van to, what was it, Salt Lake City? Yep. At that point, I was like, you know, I, could, I can afford the call back to, yeah. to a character that was pretty important and dropped in at the end of season th- three. I remember thinking, well, I'm interested in that because I'll be interested to see what she's like with interacting with our characters in person. So at this stage on the first watch, I was actually kind of looking forward to it. I was like, this, this could be cool. Yeah, it was a good hook, especially yes. towards the end of the episode, because I thought, oh, man, cool. Like, I will say this was the episode that seeing it again, it kind of reinforced this spot for me that was like the California crew just needed more of an objective. Yes. And... This was the episode that it developed. Mm-hmm. And I know the previous episodes had their own import and for reasons which, you know, are still good. But this was really where I was like, oh, the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. The crew has found their objective. And so going to Susie's, I was like, oh, sweet. They're going to go somewhere totally different. What could happen? I think partly what was also happening, the f- again, the first time through, that doesn't quite last very long w- anymore was this idea of, especially because we're also seeing what's happening to Eleven, mm-hmm. it's pretty awful. So I think the idea yeah. of like, they are coming, like yeah. they are coming to get her, like who knows what that will look like when they, when they get there. But I mean, we know we've seen it, but like, but at the time it was like, okay, at least there's someone coming to help her. Yeah. Cause and, this is a pretty heavy episode as you yeah. think about what's going on with Eleven and how yeah. traumatic that is. And I, yes, I would say that that, knowledge as like oh thank you i now know that someone is on their way to go help her to save her something that was at least giving me it was inciting some hope yeah well then i think we're gonna leave the california crew right there and we're gonna switch to operation russia all right here we go so so starting with hopper and antonov the fact that we come back to hopper after the credits it just continues this parallel between hop and l and i i do really like that as awful as it is how this ultimately winds up being reminiscent of his past too. Like it just, it does, it continues this, this parallel and it's, yeah, again, it's weird cause it's horrible. It's like they were in their own state of prison and being stuck in these situations that I think they themselves were sort of like stuck in the weight of their own actions because I think 11 was sort of swindled to come out here and then was immediately trapped. And I think hop was, trapped by his own actions to come to this place but he and antonov are both swindled yeah by yuri that's true so it and it's the ultimate swindler yeah in this situation that he now has even less control over that he did before but i do like the little like fight that he has with with antonov it makes sense he'd be angry but then he doesn't hold he knows that Antonov is right. He's yeah. like, yeah, you're right. We both, we both lost. And so it's not his fault, No, you know? And that's one of the things. And the only reason I'm like mentioning that specific small thing is because that's what, that's what I love about Hopper is mm-hmm. moments like that when he's like, yeah, there's, there's no point in like beating you into a pulp because it won't, it doesn't do anything. And it, you're right. And yeah. he's smart enough, even in that circumstance to know that he's right. I love Hop fighting Antonov, but I did not love 
while I loved his monologue in the cell talking about his daughter going to war, what happened to him, him coming back. That was new information for us. Yes, it was. As the audience. And it was powerful. It's the entire reason it's there yeah. is for us. Yeah. And so I'm glad for that. But I think the person inside me wanted that to happen with Joyce. Having this moment with this individual who is one of, I think, the few people who understands him as well is totally this great, desperate, pure love and trust and honor. And maybe that's some of that's the biggest stuff that I'm going to give it its most credit. Mm -hmm. The honor between these two characters Mm -hmm. in this very desperate situation. I really loved. Yeah. And it's funny because, yeah, this is this is the reason I think Antonov is there. They wanted this to come out, I think, when Hop is at his absolute lowest moment. And I don't think they would have given that moment to him with Joyce. This is an actual character-driven moment, and I do really love it, even though it is spoon-feeding us exposition. Yeah. I mean, it's for Hopper also, but it's this, we're just going to like throw all of this exposition on top of you, and yet somehow... It works, and I—I th- I mean, my from my perspective, I would—I would say a lot of it is Harbor. Yeah. Oh, and and that's for sure because it's so emotionally impactful. And as he's telling the story, I'm glad that we got some beats and shifts and cuts to see some of that past as well. Mm-hmm. It made it more impactful, and so I—I I loved that. And that monologue, yes, is incredibly powerful. Do I maybe wish it could have happened with somebody else? Maybe, sure, but I can still empathize with being at the end of your road, feeling that, and having nobody else to say this thing to that maybe you've just never said, and I have to believe in my heart of hearts with all of the jokes and the age of this show and the time period, Hopper is a man who does not prioritize his mental health, and so... I can see this being something coming out in this moment. Like it's not something that doesn't not make sense to me. Yeah. As he started telling this story, I immediately hearkened to some of his feelings that he's described throughout the show as well. Like feeling like a black hole Mm -hmm. and this monologue. Yeah. And this monologue was a callback to that for me. I mean, he didn't directly say that, but I immediately was like, Oh my God, This poor man, I can feel his inescapable prison that he's in. He's Mm -hmm. in his own mental prison, and here he is in prison. So maybe some of this really did work. But yeah, I loved the monologue. As an actor, that's the type of monologue that I would be like thirsting to (laughs) put my teeth around and figure out how to do and work with too. So big hats off to to Harbor on that one because I love his performance as hopper in this show and it's giving me so much more to want for him in the future when he takes any other big opportunities i think also something maybe one of the reasons why i think it works for me that he says this to antonov is be- is almost because he doesn't have a relationship with antonov because it also feels a little bit like the kind of thing you'd hear someone say in therapy like it, sure. so so i think almost having an objective person to say it to is almost why he's able to Go that there. comfort of a stranger and yeah. being able to just kind of confess yeah. in a way. Yeah. And what's what's also kind of interesting, I mean, no, having the the context of the rest of the season, it's also really interesting knowing that Antonov is also a father. Yeah. So it's, I mean, Hopper doesn't know that yet. I mean, unless it's come up, but I don't think it has. I mean, and I mean, what I mean by that is like off screen. 
The other thing that I, the other reason I think they probably put it here, put put this conversation here, is because it's yet another parallel to L, but yeah. it's character driven because he's base he's him saying I'm the curse, that's that's I'm the monster. It's the yeah. same internal struggle. It's just so that's one of the, and it was hearing that this time and and kind of absorbing that really for the first time of like just how closely their inner what their inner struggle is. Yeah. It was like, oh, that's the that's the reason for all these parallels. And I do think, kind of to your point about us seeing all of those flashbacks, it's like, I think that may very well be, be something that the Duffers have been working with, keeping in mind with his characterization, season three maybe accepting, all the <laughs> way back to season one. Yeah. And I will go ahead and say I'll call this an, an expectation. I'm hoping that this is something that they can heal together in season five. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping the same. And also that's a really great 80s theme, the angst between, you know, the youth and their parents. Um, so I feel like that's a strong theme to play on. And I would love to see them mutually heal from their own, you know, prisons that they're in right now. They're both emotionally trapped in things that they haven't moved past. And I hope they figure out how to move on together. You know, in my heart of hearts, as we're giving our Care Bear stare, like, I think love is the answer. And I think that's going to be, like, ultimately the thing in this show that's going to will out or win out yeah. in the end. Yeah, I would love, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, because this is also very, a really great example of, like, this is the this, this shit Vecna preys on. Yeah. This is oh, it. Yeah. And granted, he's not a part of this at all, but I'm like, that's why him as a metaphor for this kind of thinking works as well as it does because this is what it looks like we don't get that much time between i mean obviously because they all thought hopper was dead blah, blah, blah. but <laughs> the the fact that we don't get brown and harbor together in this season hardly at all yeah again i understand hurts. why but it's like they were such a great team in season two they worked yeah. so well off of each other i can't wait to see them share screen time again yeah. in season five me too that will definitely be one of the high notes I think in season two, I said they're both of those characters are such powerhouses, but in such different ways mm -hmm. that it's like, yeah, I want to see more, more from the two of them. I think maybe the not as equally graceful and good energy that I'm going to give these next moments are the plane and the capture of Murray and Joyce and it's... Yuri flying them away. It felt bad and hokey and I just had yeah. a really hard time with it. Maybe this episode, in contrast to some of the latter ones with Joyce and Murray, because I actually do like their being in Russia towards the end of it. Yeah, but, same. But the journey there was really difficult for me to have buy-in. And maybe it was just because there were just so many eccentric, unique character personalities that were introduced this season. I felt like Yuri and the clash with Murray and Joyce as well. I just was like, man, what is going on here? You almost, I mean, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. Like I, it's, I know Jenna hates this sequence a lot. The only thing that, the only kind of two things that I think are important in, in these, these, well, there's one important thing. And then there's one thing I just kind of like. The important thing is that we do get, I think another, like, again, if you kind of squint and turn your head a little bit, you can get the moment that, you know, they make a joke out of it, but Yuri saying, 
yeah, I'm trying to support my family. I mean, I think that's becoming a bit of a crutch in this show. Sure. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, so we're, we're humanizing him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that, and the only reason I say that's important is because I think to buy his turn later in the back half of the season, you need these little, cause that is something I think, I, bits. I think I cut it from the last episode, but something that I remember noticing was when Joyce is passing out, he's like, stroking her head like her hat yeah i was like he didn't have to do that and it doesn't feel icky when he does it which it could very easily have have been been. i'd say his character had the propensity to be creepy and he's annoying but he's never creepy yeah and that i do think that matters i could see all of the place of self-interest he was operating from and i just wasn't sure how he was going to really serve the story Mm -hmm. and i was glad to kind of get enough of him to be like okay he was the connecting point to Antonov. He went sideways, betraying Antonov here. That works. Captured these people. I believe in his going for the best deal. Yes. And so that I'm like, all right, I'm good with that. And maybe the strongest positivity I can give some of these scenes is that this is where I was like, Joyce is the smart one. She encouraged Murray in fighting, even though having the doubt that he clearly had been fighting in like a school with teenagers. And Murray, maybe this is also just my review of Murray on the whole, but Murray is like the Swiss Army character. I feel yeah. like he can serve any situation right. at any given time for reasons yeah. that also he's not important enough for me to ask why. So especially because we're still going off of season three where they where they leaned so hard on humor and they leaned so hard on laughing at their characters that I was ready for him to just absolutely fail at this karate thing. Yeah, I kind of was, too. So I'm bracing. So the reason that I ultimately like the fight at least conceptually is that (laughs) he does know his stuff like he he does win. I just wish like if I was going to script doctor this bit. Murray just takes him out quickly yeah. because that also feels more like Murray's characterization. Maybe I'm off about that, but that's kind of where I land with it. I'm happy to see that it's a success in where it needed to go for the rest of the season and the story. Yeah. But it was some of the most I'm leaning out. I can't really fully buy this or believe what's going on here. I'm suspending so much disbelief and I'm just like, you know, what? it's fine. It's fine. It's fine, right? It's fine. It's fine. Well, but fill it with the whole, my hands are like arrows. Like, yeah. wh- why though? Like, That's where I, I feel like they're, it's like so you silly. said, season three being so humorous. Yes. This felt like a similar moment of like, you are giving yeah. me your self-aware humor. Like maybe like if they had started with that and yeah. that that's which they do. And then Yuri fights back and blah, blah, blah. And then have Yuri, have Murray abandon that. And sure. it's like, just, just fight. And like, have it be a little bit more serious. I would have bought in a lot more if they'd done that. Because again, to your point, this episode opened with a man dying. Yeah, it's like, a lot. And we see the the one guy, the other agent, in the process of also dying. Yeah. Like, and, what? And then I think we see the one being captured. Yes. Uh, who we know is, uh, you know, in subsequent episodes here, going to be tortured in a yes. very awful way, which, well, you know, the military is its whole other thing as a presence and character force in the show. But I did not love that. And I want to be clear because I think that this, this hasn't really been said yet on this podcast, but I understand that there's a need for levity Mm -hmm. but i also think that there's a difference between doing something as ridiculous as this and something like 
what we see in Hawkins later with the moment between Max and Lucas when she says the like, you're such a dork. I thought you were all cool now. And he's like, I'm not cool. Like that's a yeah. moment of levity, but it's so succinct and it's so it's so grounded in the present moment. It's like you don't have to take this wild swing away from the from the stakes of where you're at. And I think that's ultimately where when we talk about the tonal, it's so tonally dissonant. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't have said it better. But at the same time, I can look at this moment and be like, Gilman and Ryder definitely do a great job. And oh, yeah. I imagine he had probably a blast doing it. So Yeah, I think despite maybe the overall like tones being all over the place, maybe through the season, they're great together. They and are. I would love to see more with that. And I guess maybe where I'm like still stuck in that review of Murray being this like, Swiss army character who can fit any situation. It's a great way to put it. I don't love those types of characters all the time. Oh man. All of a sudden now he knows these things. It just, it's, it's, it's a funny cascade of Murray is able to just do the thing that we need when we need him to. I mean, they set it up in the first episode with him, like talking about getting back from karate practice and all of that, but it it's more the, so I don't mind that part yeah. of it. It's more just the the fact that they had to work in the the mantras and like the just do the just do the thing, man. Just do the thing. And then I feel like I would have respected it more because it would have been like, you know, we really let Murray have his moment. Yeah, yeah, we really let him go for it. Yeah, and that would have felt more like the the Murray that we met in season two. Yeah, but they've turned him into a much more comedic character. Incredibly and, so. And granted, I mean, again praise to Gel- Brett Gelman because I feel like he makes that work in a way not unlike Eduardo Franco as Argyle it's like on paper I don't think I would like that character but them in the role and, and probably credit to the direction as well but like th- they their natural charisma is what manages to make it work and their handling of a lot of that that's true because really Murray is an incredibly likable character he is and I'm gonna go with saying that's probably Gelman I think Gelman's pulling a lot of the weight on that one the ridiculousness of the fight in the air was something that I had a hard time buying and that buy-in forced me leaning out. And we talked about, I do fight choreography for stage. And I love that in film, what's so cool is you can put the eye of the beholder wherever you need it to be to sell the fight. And I feel like in a plane, which can feel pretty claustrophobic, there's only so many places you can go. So everything was really on the profile And because of the chanted mantras and the editing that was going back and forth between outside the plane, inside the plane, back to Joyce, close-ups that were on either Yuri or Murray, uh, it just was all edited in a really weird way that maybe it was great for Murray and funny, uh, but it wasn't to me like a good fight. And I know that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're in one part of a set and we're being sold on some green screen stuff outside and animation that, you know, this plane is under these disastrous conditions while yeah. this fight is also just happening on the plane. It's that's that stuff's hard. And especially in a place that I'm like, oh, you know, Russia's windy. It's very cold. It's snowy. Flying conditions have to be pretty stressful. So there's just a lot. For me to try to really consider with this fight going on. And so, yeah, I think the over the topness of it is what they were going for. And that was probably the safe call and editing bet. But as far as fights go, I do thirst for more continuous action going on in a shot versus things being cut so quickly and then assembled later for it to work. That was an example of 
it worked because it was edited that way, not because I thought it was a good fight or that anything looked continuous. Yeah, it's not it's not great. <laughs> yeah, not a high point for the episode or, you know, the season. No. But then yeah, I think I think on that note, we'll we'll we're going to shift to Hawkins. All right, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I have a section kind of towards the end that's sort of for Eddie and the the Tigers, but Eddie kind of flirts between both groups. That's true. So I will say that like after watching chapter four and spending so much time on chapter four, I was so happy to see Eddie. Like, I don't know. It was like such a delightful little surprise to be so surprised that I was happy to see this character. Cause like I didn't, we needed his energy back into the group dynamic. I think. Cause I said in chapter four and I stand by this, that his presence in chapter four would have been out of place yeah. at the same time. Very happy. He's back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The agency of his being on the lamb was becoming uh, an important focal point. Yeah. And I mean, just kind of moving into the rest of the the stuff, like just like I, I love the when they they come upstairs, when Nancy and Dustin come upstairs and they see the drawings. And I, I mean, I do love the shout out to Will, which I thought was kind of cute, considering that there's been so much emphasis on we don't have L. It was like, you know, God, we need Will. Like it was just such a great little line. I yeah, love that. Well, and I think that's. Will was so has been so essential to all of this story. In this moment, the the moving the drawings around, it was also very reminiscent of the second season. Yeah, very. I was like, I like that. Um, I mean, I didn't need the you know Dustin's always eating joke. Like we we didn't need that. No, yeah, we did. We definitely didn't need that. But then the Creel House, man. Yeah. <laughs> I this scene is so this whole sequence. It's just so great. It felt the most on brand. When, right when they first get there, Steve and Nancy taking the boards down. It's a really interesting contrast to Jonathan and Nancy boarding up the window at the end of the season. Oh. Like literally down to the framing and the blocking. Like the, Nancy is framed right. Steve is framed left. Jonathan is framed left. Nancy is framed right. And the, just it's interesting that they are taking this board down and at the end they're putting it back up up and i was like interesting but that stands in really interesting contrast to some other elements about them in this sequence yeah well in these sequences i feel like it sets up so much of that framing between nancy's feelings for both of these characters yeah (laughs) i love the i found a key (laughs) i I love her i love robin she's so great yeah i love robin because i feel like where the rest of the crew can get so up in the clouds and in the sky about what's going on and their wonderings. I mean, I have to think in my mind, it is pretty ludicrous that some of these things just come up and it's like, yeah, we'll call it a Demogorgon. Oh, it's Vecna. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's that, you know, it's all of that. And, and Robin is so like matter of factly logical sometimes that I'm like, Robin is probably in my mind, like the Spock of this group in some ways. She's just like the logical one to me. And I find her humor so funny. Same. Where I see Steve as the high charisma, high wisdom, but low intelligence for sure. (laughs) I think it goes oppositely uh, in the other direction uh, for Robin. I think that Robin has the high intelligence, but the low wisdom. That's where the two of them complement each other. They're good scene partners. They're good foils. They're good team. Yeah, Yeah. they're a really good team. Like their energy is very driving. There was something so barbarian-esque, though, about let's just throw a brick 
that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. Barbarian wizard. Multi-class. They have such interesting problem solving skills. The all of them as they all just kind of mesh their skills together. I mean, I could very easily see like I've often said that my opinion is that Max is a rogue, but I could Ooh, easily. Yeah. But like if Robin wasn't there, I feel like Max would have done that. Yeah. Oh, like, for sure. You know, I don't I didn't I, once they get inside the Krill house, I didn't. I, I love Stephen Dustin. I do. Mm hmm. But I'm not sure that I dug this, and this is partly, I think, holdover energy on my part from season three. This, like, where did you get the flashlights? Do you need to be told everything? And then, like, you crack the case. Like, why are we making, why are we doubling down on the fact that he, because in both cases, like, why doesn't he get a flashlight? And he is picking up on the clock pattern. Again, he's asking good questions and yeah. we're, we're making it out like he's being stupid. I'm like, the theory is not great. Like, is he a clockmaker? But like, he's picking up on the pattern and I'm like, yeah. bad ideas lead to good ideas, yeah. right? Like that's, and they've all said shit like that before. Yeah. So I'm like, I didn't, that's one of the only Steve Dustin dynamic moments that I didn't, I didn't love. You know, like, I love the moments where Steve doesn't know something that he would maybe question of Dustin, mm -hmm. but at the same time, he would just as easily be like, it's kind of Han Solo energy. It's, it's asking, hearing the question from 3PO and being like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Whatever, man. Sure. And then immediately turning over to Chewbacca and being like, yeah, actually pair it with the power cup link and that's going to fix it. That's what I love about it because I see that Han Solo and Steve by the, by not knowing, but also being so like, earnestly and almost damnedly confident it's just his energy so like i loved that i love that energy when they play with it and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't the sherlock quote yes because i like that dustin said it and to steve in that moment it seems stupid and like yeah whatever well he didn't answer steve's question yeah, yeah. That's the other <laughs> he also thing. didn't do that either he didn't answer the question yeah. but uh but i love that steve echoes it to uh nancy later and he gets the sentiment right yeah he actually understood it he yeah. just fumbles the exact quote of it yeah which i was good with that too like yeah. i'm i'm good with his cute. again i love the prototype of a character at this point in my mind that is a himbo yeah. and that's him. That is him. And I feel like he does it so earnestly that I'm not feeling like it's a caricature of a himbo. I actually believe Steve's agency and, and where he comes from is a, maybe not knowing. Mm -hmm. I didn't in season three. Yeah. In season three, I think they they strayed a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. But I think in this in this season, they kind of got it. They, they pulled back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even down to the, like, again, the perception thing. Like, when they go into that room, you know, he asks Dustin the question, like, what are we looking for? And then he keeps looking and he finds, he, again, he perceives yeah. those jars. And so this, this whole thing with Steve and Nancy and a little bit with Robin, the first time I watched the, the show, we got to this part. I saw that spider on his shoulder and I was like, it pissed me off. And, and I actually got up because we were watching in a group and I said, I, and I got up and I was like, I'm, I, I'm not going to watch this. And I left the room and my, our, our friend Ben like called was like, do you want me to pause it? And I'm like, no, I'm leaving. So I don't have to <laughs> because pulling in from that season three energy, especially cause I, I may, I must've seen him back into back out and run into Nancy because I was like, great, they're going to chastise him for being afraid of a spider. Yeah. So I don't even think I was there long enough to hear Black Widow. Yeah. 
especially after the two interactions with Dustin that they just had. I'm like, I don't need to watch them do that to Steve. I'm just, I'm not here for it. But in watching this through this time, I was really surprised. I was delighted by what's actually here. I realized, oh, they don't make fun of him for the spider thing. Like Robin's joke is about his hair. I also liked that maybe even as silly as that moment could have been, and as much as I maybe in my own fantasy wanted Joe Keery to become Spider-Man right there, um, <laughs> I, uh, I definitely was like, okay, cool. Like they're in the right house. Like that at least was enough yeah. for a small touch that I was like, okay, they're in Vecna's web. Cool. Thanks for that show. Yeah. I like that. But then the actual exchange between them, I love how earnest he sounds when he's like, we should all go out. Like, you know, and Jonathan when he's back, like there's no, this also feels like a continuation of what Heidi was speaking to last episode about how like, he's not trying to like shoot his shot. But I also like that he, I think is becoming self-aware of these profound feelings, relationships, and loves that he's developing. Because I guess maybe what's so complicated for him and maybe his feelings for Nancy is that he has feelings of love and attachment with her that were before all of this. And and then for, her, for him to know that she's with another person, he is just being a good person. And honestly, I think that's like the big lesson, I think, to take there is just he seems pretty aware and like he's listening. He's not dumb. He knows mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. And uh, I don't think he wants to do anything to upset it either. I think he's just trying to let things be as organic or natural as they can be. And maybe that's why I love Steve so much. He's a character that's just really in the moment a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Well, and also like in this moment too, he's not like, I mean, I think again, based on where they go with it, I think it's, clear that they're indicating that he's been carrying a torch for nancy but i like Mm -hmm. that at least in this moment he's not like pining either and i i appreciate i just the the like finesse of that is really really and maybe again maybe it was unintentional but i really like the way that was that was the way they threaded that needle was very very well done yeah now i noticed the score Mm -hmm. in this exchange and i looked it up because i was like what what is this track and curiously this is the track this isn't you which is from season one which initially i think plays for the first time when barb and nancy have their scene on the stairs overlapped with jonathan in the woods and barb on the diving board with her hand bleeding so uh, i thought maybe it was just picked for the sound they've they've done that before but it also seems like it might have been chosen for the significance of when we first heard it, which is only because if it was intentional, then I think it absolutely may indicate no, no, don't, this is not good. Like we're not going in this direction, which I, which is, which is why I said the thing with the the board Mm -hmm. and the, the parallel there is so interesting because that feels like they're going, no, we are, we are taking down this barrier that's been put up. We are going to go in that direction. And then, so it it might've just. They're playing with fire. Yeah. That's for sure. It might've just been because it sounds good. Cause it did. It sounded really nice. It sounded sweet and whatnot. And then to have it, but then to be like, oh, it's that piece of music. But I like that it's enough of an echo to a time before and with these characters already it does feel at least reminiscent enough for me to think, wow, they've come a long way, these, yeah. t- these two. And to be where they are now, uh, yeah, it's kind of just, it's just precious. It is. I guess against all the odds, it's hard for me to imagine all of the things that have happened and that that's where they found themselves again. 
the last time we saw them share like active screen time was when they split. I mean, quite literally, I'm including Dyer and Kiri in that. They're still the same people, but it's like they've evolved so much. Will that chemistry still be there? And it was like to sense, see them together. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. Long story short. I, I, I love this, all of this stuff. It's so good. And it was such a relief to like watch this scene, having not really watched it before, like even in my rewatches, I've skipped it. And to kind of get here and be like, oh, okay, it's it's a different energy. Yeah. As far as like the rest of the stuff happening in the Creel house, um, I mean, Max and Lucas, 10 out of 10, no notes. I love it. I love Lucas being a dork. I love their chemistry. I love how honest and not forceful Lucas is with her at Lumax forever. Yeah, I will. I also ship it because the innocence of it is so believable. I just love how genuine they are. I, I can really feel the two of them reaching for one another. Again, like, I mean, seriously, the way that he's not forceful with her, mm-hmm. he's still being very gentle, but he's also like going, he's like nudging that boundary and saying, I've really missed your laugh. Like that's because that's speaking to not just, hey, I miss you, but also like, I've missed seeing you not be burdened by grief. Mm-hmm. In terms of the house hauntedness mm-hmm. aspect of the Creel house, I mean, it is really amazing. It continues to be amazing. Like, this is definitely one aspect of the show that does really, really well on rewatch because even though you know what they're picking up on, mm-hmm. it's still absolutely, it's still super compelling. And yet the first time through, I think I was I was starting to get very confused, like maddeningly wondering what is the connection between Vecna and the Krill house, but sure. still thinking that it had some, it had to be something separate from the family itself. And I think the big reason is because Victor not being evil himself mm-hmm. was a massive, like throwing me off the scent. I kind of felt like because of a lot of popular eighties horror uh, and really feeling this season spotlight, a lot of it, I felt like the haunted house had leanings that felt like Amityville horror Mm -hmm. uh, that felt like um, the house in it because that also is a really good moment where kids specifically go to a haunted location and so I felt like they really dug deep on a lot of stuff on this season and even the lake uh, gives me Friday the 13th vibes Um, actually in fact I just went on a bachelor trip camping uh, where they filmed Friday the 13th and uh, I got to see the actual lake that they did all that filming on and that was really cool and honestly seeing it just gave me that summer camp vibe the same way that seeing the lake the boat this season just had so much influence and then obviously Victor Creel was Robert England so like that was awesome but Mm -hmm. also that i knew going into the season i was like oh robert england is in this and i knew that they used that as a part of the marketing so i also felt like that was a red herring obviously this well-known horror actor is gonna play a somewhat horrifying role and i just assumed in my like naive heart he must be bad he must be a bad guy it's a natural assumption yeah and like i guess he was but ultimately that was the red herring he you yeah, know, cool. Because he no, he's not. Yeah, yeah he was like, not at all. He's the one who's just trapped behind by it all, and Henry made it away. Actually, hearing you say that, like we talked a lot about that last episode, but that's a really fascinating way to look at it. Like, yeah, of course you would, because again, because you you actually like horror. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I like a lot of it, yeah. and like I feel like to think about horror from the days that are stuff like Friday the Thirteenth and Evil Dead, where you could look at that and be like, man. This is some awesome B-movie stuff, but I can see what they're doing. And it's awesome to know that those movies 
have become like the staples now where sure production value has jumped through the roof writing and the psychological twists and the complicated relationships are so much more than they've ever been. And uh, yeah, love to see it. But this season had so much influence from so much other horror that I was like, man, this is awesome. It really felt like the biggest amalgamation of horror. Okay. That's that's actually one of the biggest high points I'll give this whole season. Okay. That's fascinating. uh, But yeah, Victor Creel was a really good, you misled me. That actually hearing you say all of that makes me appreciate that sequence all the more. Like we already raved about it, but that's a fascinating point. He's that much more of a cursed character. Like Heidi spoke last episode about how to have Vecna embody what he does mm-hmm. was a was ballsy. And then to use music in the way they do was ballsy. I actually think for them to do what they did with Victor was also very ballsy. Big time. For all of what you just said. I, I wonder what some bigger fans of horror would say about that, actually. What did you think? Was that a cool choice for you? Did you love that? Or did you feel like you didn't get your money's worth when you found out like, Oh, this prominent horror actor uh, is going to be in this show and also kind of play a role that's very related to what his very popular horror character did. Yeah. Invading dreams, dream space and turning that against you and killing you in that space, you know, to go that close to the sun and then also be like, hey, by the way, jokes on you. Yeah. Well, and and to have it completely work in the context of the show. Well, so then that leads me to wonder, like in, in the Creel house, when they find the, when the stuff starts happening with the lights from the horror perspective, when they end up in the attic, it did strike me as like when they're standing in the circle and the lights are all coming on, obviously there's the context of we know what's happening, but that felt very like seance to me. Oh, very. Is that a reference to something specific? Not necessarily, but I do feel like seances are very popular, like things to have happen in a horror movie to see, you know, what is haunting this house or, you know, anything like that. And that's been used in stuff from, I think, as far as X-Files to are, yeah. are you afraid of the dark? Right. So that becomes very palatable in my mind. But I would say that like, because haunted houses are such a location thing, um, I got a lot of Hellraiser vibes from this season as well. And, and Vecna strictly gave me a lot of pinhead vibes too. In that from another world can come into this world, can take you back to theirs. And just so many unanswered questions, too. Except that Vecna's not actually from another world. No, yeah. He's a human dude. He's a human dude. The way that that scene in the attic is woven in with the stuff, with Patrick's death. Like, I, I really love how those two two narratives are threaded together all through, all through oh, the episode. Yeah. I mean, and then... And yeah, starting with Chrissy's funeral. I mean, I assume it's a funeral. It yeah, looks like a funeral. I think it's, so, or a memorial of some kind. Yeah, because her because her mother's speech is not a eulogy. No, it's ugh. Yeah, there's so much about everything around Chrissy except Eddie that is really really icky. Chrissy and her mother had some very unhealthy yeah. dynamics in place, um, but it so in a way it's not surprising that her mother is using this as like kind of a a look at me kind of thing kind of but also that's like, kind of the vibe i got which i didn't love that especially i guess maybe i just wanted the grief to be more real but that's also where i'm like yeah a memorial this was totally not a funeral it's a really fascinating way to think about how much of an influence that might have been on jason and his teammates oh sure and i you know it's like and them <laughs> them showing up at reefer rick's 
still in their suits. Oh, yeah. I actually really liked that because they didn't go home to change. It's like, no, we went straight there. Yeah. Well, and I think Jason said something like no stone unturned at some point when they consider reefer ricks. Mm -hmm. And that's the point where I'm like, okay, the tenacity of these uh, dude bras has, has really (laughs) has really picked up. They themselves are also messing with a power that they don't fully understand or reckon. I like seeing Patrick kind of start to go. I don't, I don't know if, even if I believe this, I don't know that I want to keep doing this, poking this particular dragon. Like I don't, this seems like a, maybe not smart. That's maybe where some of the buy-in in particular is something that I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I totally buy it, that the team is just blindly behind Jason on this one. But I can see how in numbers they probably are confident. And that is scary um, because we've we've seen it. There is a part of me that leans out a little bit there, too, because I just have to imagine there are some kids that even under peer pressure, they're like, yeah, dude, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, ultimately, that's what happens with Lucas. Yeah. But it is a it is a really good vehicle to use from an actual time in life that this happened and definitely demonstrate. uh how bad that radicalization can be. I feel really bad when Patrick dies. Yeah. Every one of their deaths is visually like kind of hard to forget is just, yeah, it hurts. Again, since you're here, I'm going to ask you, is it it, the way that Vecna kills them with the bones breaking in the eyes? Is that specifically calling to anything in Um, the genre? Yes and no. I would say that it's the control It's that being able to puppet master. I'm confident that there's some type of like mind spike or sliver where Vecna uses an ability. And if you fail said, I think wisdom saving throw, or it might be constitution. I feel like there's a control aspect that he can move you and do whatever he wants with you. So the damage, the crumpling, the bones, the crunching, all that breaking, it's more of a he has forced you to do that to your own body. And that's that's how I felt it described in the monster manual. That's how I feel like I dungeon master would have come to understand it. But Vecna strikes me as one of those creatures who probably does get to make legendary actions as well. Takes actions in player turns uh, is just that powerful. That makes sense. Because I even wondered about that at one point. I'm like, how is he able to do that when so much of what his power is is psychological? Mm-hmm. That's creepy. Yeah, very, very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, comes yeah. with the territory. Think, think of it as just like the mastermind villain, the hive mind mastermind. I want to say that when I first watched this episode, Eddie is probably, I mean, even though he falls in the water and I'm like worried about how much weight he has on him with those, those clothes (laughs) and the chains and all. And I'm like, but, but when he went, I mean, he pops right back up, but it was like thinking, and in a way I was on this rewatch, I was like, oh, I kind of hope he doesn't see this. Cause it's like, he's already seen it once. He doesn't want to see it again. Yeah. Like, oh, Eddie, I'm sorry. I know. For so many reasons. I know. (laughs) My man's just getting so traumatized throughout this season. And You know, I feel like that's a through line throughout this season is just characters that either hadn't seen someone die in front of them before Mm -hmm. or just had not. I don't know, just ever had that happen. You know, Mm -hmm. that was very real. Well, kind of speaking of trauma, let's finish out this episode with talking about Eleven. Oof. Big big oof. oof. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, pretty much right away. Brenner's line. If we if we told you it ruined the surprise. Yeah cringy i mean and he's great he's really great at playing that role because like that is also his energy 
that is that is directly to us the audience yeah it's and it's and that just makes me go bullshit yeah because it, it just it is it feels like such a cop-out like i understand that they don't want to do that but the fact that it's wrapped up in this surprise to her i yeah. just i especially considering that they've gone out of their way to explain other things in this season in particular and that this is the only explanation we get as far as i remember yeah. i mean heidi has been on record this season as saying like we didn't we didn't need Brenner, not as an active, alive person, because he absolutely could have been in the simulation and that would have freaked her out enough. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I think the simulation was jarring no matter what, yeah. uh, both for Eleven and even us as viewers getting used to what was really going on, how, why, when was this exactly? There was a lot to establish. And while I had questions that were definitely like, well, where has he been? I don't know. I could have done without him. This whole arc, I just feel like is unnecessarily padded. It's like the fact that yeah. she, so much of, of a lot of these episodes with her feel very circular and very redundant. Like we cover the same territory over and over I again. I definitely feel like we've been already two times before this at a stage of 11, you have to be stronger. It gives me big anime vibes, honestly. Mm. The the like the constant same enemy or force and having to be stronger than it. I don't know. Maybe I'm really going out on a limb here, but like Eleven is like the Goku of Dragon Ball Z and is just constantly having to ascend a new power level. You know, that's fine. But when it's the mechanism so many times, mm -hmm. I don't know what roof I'm supposed to believe is the height of her power or the height of our villains powers, you know, one of my script doctoring approaches that I would have had is in that introduction scene with Brenner that to me, Elle should have been like flipped to Owens and been like, what the fuck? Yeah, for real. And that a lot of Brenner's dialogue actually could have been given to Owens. Like he, for sure. And he should have, I feel like part of the problem for me is that he, there is never any on camera in, in context acknowledgement of the fact that he screwed her over. Oh, yeah. He never says, if I had told you, you wouldn't have come. Like, there there should have been some vo vocalization of that. And for me, the waking, you know, and, and when we talked about a little bit of this, at the end of chapter three, um, you know, I said that it's hard for me, as much as I like that sequence at the end of chapter three, this is the reason that I can't, I don't think I can ever fully forgive the character because her waking up in, in what she thinks is the lab. Mm-hmm. It's one of those I don't think, you know, to, to borrow from stuff that Heidi has said multiple times, I don't think they thought about the implications of what that actually means for her. Because they have not only shaved her head, but they've put her into that suit, which we see. There's a lot of complicated off-screen things to unwrap yep. about it. Yep. And after already having had that guard say what he did, when Eleven tried to run be a good girl for the doctor or something like that. And Play I was nice for I, the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's Ugh. what it was. And Ugh. it just immediately Gross. made me gag with like, gross. I hate it. And for a character that just got kind of swindled into coming to this place. Yeah. This is gross. Like why he did not need to speak. I'm like, was that guy like a, we have somebody who needs to speak on set. So they gave him a line. It, and yeah. It or did they accidentally find out that guy was union or something and they had to give him a line or something like, I don't know. And then why that line? Yeah. I hated it. If I were that actor, uh, you know, speaking on just a, did you have a single line in a thing? I would hate that. 
Yeah. I would hate that that was the thing that I either was given or that that's what I walked away with. Yeah. And then Brenner basically put her to sleep and then cradle her into this like fetal position. I mean, so much cringe creep factor. Um, Maybe it was supposed to make me feel that way. Maybe that's the most best I'll give it. But yeah, that non-consent informed place with children is a very scary, dangerous place to be. And even for entertainment's purposes, you know, as a TV show, you know, that can definitely incite terror, uneasy feelings in me. But that's also just a dangerous place to be. So yeah, scary. I really didn't like that. This whole entire episode just gave me big Brenner creep cringe factor vibes. And by the time we see what happens to him and meet his demise, it's not redemption to me. In fact, I just really wish he hadn't been there. The more I think about it, the more, yeah, I think Heidi kind of called it in our reactions episodes. It's like, I, you know, at the time I was like, <laughs> I kill it with fire. Well, no, the, well, the, no, I know, yeah, I mean, but him. kind of, yeah. And kind of almost literally. Yeah. You're probably right. That was probably their intention to make it this this creepy and this sick. But I don't I just I don't know that it needed to be. I, I again I think the it's too the, much. <laughs> it is. It's it's too much. They swung a little too hard. Definitely sits with me and it sits with me through the episode because uh, I dress up as Spider-Man and I visit kids and I talk to them and so I'm very passionate about hearing kids' voices and, you know, understanding their agency and having a fine and profound respect for that as I'm coming to just learn more about kids experiences as Spider-Man. It's great. And I felt like Eleven had already kind of broken free from this in a pretty liberating way. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just, I just really did not need or want to see all of this happen to her again. There were other horror aspects of the show that they could have leaned into more uh, than that. Well, and I think you could have still done the surrealism aspect of it, even with her knowing what she was getting into. Because not only do they is is there this creep factor in this, I mean, absolutely disgusting physical consequence of what they chose to do, but also this, I mean, like I'm gonna I'm gonna say like I feel like Elle took psychic damage from yeah. the experience of waking up in the lab, and yet I have to be honest in that not actually unlike the cold open of the season. Part of the reason it hits so hard is because of how effectively it's shot, how effective mm-hmm. her performance is. Oh yeah, yeah, Millie Bobby Brown killed it. They just the tears just fall. The, the extreme close up on her face, the way she feels her head, like that is so dark. Yeah, I, I and, it's intense and it's un. I do feel like it's unnecessary both in universe <laughs> and from like the creative perspective. Yeah. Like I think that would it's have been lot. that would have been traumatic enough for her, even if she knew it was coming. Yeah. I, I just feel like there's other ways they could have gone around it. And I I already had all kinds of cringy feelings about the Papa daughter feelings oh. and vibes. And then with the way the episode ends with them walking off together, hand in hand and like, <laughs> don't love that. Don't love that imagery coming back or that we're finding maybe even 11 in a state of like rescinding. I would have thought that more of her power would have come from a place of release her own agency, all those things. I don't know. I guess maybe I just would have found that more uplifting as well. And I, you know, and actually speaking of like uplifting, this was an uplifting thought to me on this episode until it wasn't. And it had everything to do with Brenner and uh, Owens. But I think during the walkabout in the facility, they said something like all of the people that are here right now are here because they believe in you. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was probably the most nice hopeful thing to hear and 
I guess maybe in my heart of hearts, I wanted to believe that was real. Just like Elle. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel like had they maybe just gone that route, there were so many things they could have just dodged or saved themselves time or given other screen time to other actors that I also would have really liked to have seen some more. Re Jonathan. I was heartbroken that they went this way with Owens because I really liked Owens so much. And I was so excited he was going to be an active role in this season. And then this is what they like you did again. Like how much more interesting would it have been if it had been just him? Yeah. There are moments in here that I really did actually like her waking up after they've after she's gone into cardiac arrest, like and the way she attacks Brenner. Like, Mm -hmm. hell yeah. Yeah. You know, the call back to season one in that final that final shot when, you know, it's right after we've seen Elle make her first kill and Brenner comes in and like that. The mirroring of that is great, especially because she doesn't cower here like she did in the first one because she's not yeah. she's not too tired. And at the same time, this is also a parallel to Hopper's escape attempt in chapter four. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, if it's kind of slightly skewed, you know, she has the choice to leave, except not really. Yeah, I was going to say, does she really, though? I think they were making the deliberate choice to have her regress. I just don't like that choice. If, you know, I still think you could have had this moment where she ends up staying. But like, you know, I I think it would have been so much more empowering. Like if the only thing you did is that after she has that massive release of power and Brenner comes up and her reaction is, okay, I'll come with you, but I'm not taking your hand. And like, like in this moment, if he had said daughter, like if he had initiated and said daughter and she said Dr. Brenner. Mm-hmm. I would have been, I would have actually really, really loved everything up to this point. Cause I yeah. do, cause I think he's also trying to like, he was trying to get her to this release point and that's why he was putting her through all of this. But I hate, I just, even if it's well done, even if it's earned, I just don't like it. Yeah. Same. I wanted to see her rise more above it. See her do it her way. Yes. It actually reminds me a lot of what I've said earlier in the season about what I, about, you know, how I feel about Will. It's just, I, I want so much better for her, mm-hmm. even under these circumstances. And I feel like that was possible. So it just winds up being a real bummer of a place to end the episode. And yeah, so that's going to bring us into to final thoughts. I feel like where it starts is strong, where it goes from there among all of these different crews. Like, actually, I, I think this episode is great considering where it's at. But I think my biggest critique is, again, just there's that tonal dissonance and i'm gonna i just feel like we got to come back to that because there's a lot of that in this episode in particular there are moments in this where i am finding the direction i'm seeing where the rising action is going to go towards a conclusion and that's that's big it's funny because in because i actually really like a lot of this episode Mm -hmm. um which makes the ending (laughs) an especially rough landing Yeah, yeah you know it actually i actually broke my usual custom of not continuing the series and started chapter six because i hated to leave it there it just it leaves me with such a sour taste in my mouth and it's and just a really not great feeling about the show that i didn't want to walk away with i wonder how i would have felt week to week with this show yeah hitting about this episode and then going into the next or just how palatable everything would have been well and you know we've tracked it through the podcast of how stranger things usually has this like we end in one place and we pick up immediately after. And that's something I didn't touch on at the beginning is that because we have this time jump, it radically does not do that. Yeah. And you know where the next episode starts, we'll touch on that then, but it's, I think this season does a little bit more of the jumping around in general Mm -hmm. because we are so scattered geographically, if nothing else. And yeah, this was definitely one where I was actually really glad that 
I had the ne- we had the next episode readily available because yikes. Yes, big yikes. The other big disappointment that I, I want to touch on here in final thoughts is that I I initially came into this episode really excited mm-hmm. when when you know like even just having looked at the the list of episodes and who they were written by before it dropped and seeing that Kate Treffrey or Treefree who also produced this episode and I think a number of episodes this season seeing that she was the writer on this was a big point of interest for me because she was the lead writer on the sauna test in season three, which was such a breath of fresh air that season. That is still to me the ultimately like best episode of season three by like by a long shot. Yeah. And she, she worked in so much great moments of female perspective without making the male characters wrong. It gave the characters so much agency and brought, this groundedness to a season that had been so wildly bombastic up to that point. This almost felt like the opposite, specifically in Elle's storyline. I mean, I, lo- I love the way that, that Treffrey handles the characterization of Nancy, Max and Robin and, and even Joyce, mm-hmm. you know, not as much, but, but, you know, a little bit, but like, but Elle to do that, to her character and not comment on it once to have it never stated anywhere. And somehow yeah. it feels framed as one of the don't worry our pretty heads about it, but in like the worst way, like, oh, well, that's Brenner. Like, what did you expect? And that built in sensibility that we're just supposed to go along with it is is really what gets under my skin. And that, that's just what was so unexpected from this writer. Now, I will absolutely acknowledge that a lot of Elle's storyline in, in this episode specifically might have been out of Treffrey's hands like this may have been an overarching story and decisions or direction given to her from on high that she just had to work with and given how messy Elle's plotline is overall this season at least in my in my opinion I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case I mean I love all the interactions with her and 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 one like mm-hmm. we didn't touch on that much but like that was really good I mean one question I continue to have is what is two's relationship to one? Does two know that th- yeah. the orderly is one? And if so, what was that relationship like? So many questions. Yeah. And so, you know, apart from from the L stuff and with the tonal dissonance of some of the Russia stuff, like, I mean, I, I do, in spite of that, I actually really dig the episode. Like, I you know, I love the mounting tension, the puzzle solving. I love the romantic stuff, like those little sparks that we get. I, mm-hmm. I actually really enjoy getting Hopper's backstory, getting to see Eddie again. Like, all that stuff works. I still love Joyce and Murray, which we touched on. You know, I enjoy him getting to have his moment, absurd as it might be, and... And it was a relief in some ways because I, I came into this episode like really nervous because I, I, I not not in like the, oh, I'm nervous to talk about stuff, but just like I remembered the L stuff taking up so much of the air in the room and feeling like I don't I don't want to talk about that because it really bums me out. But then remembering like, but this is the episode with the Creel house. Like this is when they go to the Creel house and knowing that this episode also had to follow dear Billy yeah. like this that was a tough act to follow and I feel like given that they it actually did a lot better than I was expecting so that was a big relief and like you know I didn't say it enough through through our conversation but like the visuals are on point again this oh, this, yeah. this episode you know delivered to us again from Caleb Heyman who's back as DP for the first time since chapter two Vecna's curse and he will be the DP for the remainder of season four whoa and, sweet yeah and that's there, awesome there were three editors credited to this episode which is actually unusual like there's usually multiple editors listed like on the team but this mm-hmm. was the first time I that I in a while or ever that I've seen three listed as just the episode like main editors so wow. 
That's um, a lot of credit then. And like, I mean, and they're all three of them are Stranger Things veteran editors, mm-hmm. um, Casey Chichaki, Nat Fuller and Dean Zimmerman. So I'm looking, so with that in mind, I'm looking forward to seeing how the visuals progress into the rest of the season, especially in the next episode where we get a lot more emphasis on the lake as a set piece. Yes, which uh, that is exciting. Then with that said, that is going to conclude our contemplation on Chapter 5, The Nina Project. As always, thank you for listening. You can join the conversation by finding us on TikTok and Instagram or even sending us an email. All the links are in the show notes. And if you're a fan of our pod, please consider giving us a rating and review. Coffee and Contemplation is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, y'all. Catch Robin and Steve on the next episode. Over and out. I adopted two cats. I don't know if I told you that. Yes, you did. Okay, good. And you've officially gone with Oscar and Pedro? Yeah, I've decided that that's it for sure. And that that, that, that is, I'm assuming, inspired by the two actors. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Their full names are actually Meowster Isaac and Pedro Pscal. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs>